A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part two in our series of the history of anti-Semitism. So this series is sponsored by the Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies, a leading academic program in Jewish studies that equips students with the tools to search out their own unique path into the study of Jewish history and scholarship. Based in Midtown Manhattan, the Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies provides students a supportive environment and personal attention from world-class faculty, seminar-style courses, one-on-one mentorship opportunities, and career advancement guidance. Students can study in person or do the program online from anywhere in the world. Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies has produced outstanding leaders in chinuch, academia, and Jewish communal service for more than 40 years. The Turo University Graduate School of Jewish Studies offers a Master's of Arts degree in Jewish Studies with concentrations in Jewish History and Jewish Education and a Doctor of Philosophy degree in Jewish History, Literature, and Thought. The Master of Arts program includes in-person, remote, and hybrid options. Each program consists of a rigorous, well-structured curriculum in which students are able to discuss and debate ideas and delve into challenging texts with professors and with passionate, accomplished peers. The Master of Arts History courses with emphasis in medieval and modern Jewish history, literature, and thought offer a thorough and thoughtful look at the lives and ideas of Jews over the past millennium, and the Masters of Arts Education program focuses on effective classroom instruction and management, day school curriculum, and methodologies of teaching diverse subjects in Jewish studies. The Ph.D. program provides graduate students advanced academic training in Jewish studies with an emphasis upon the intellectual, cultural, literary, social, and political history of the Jewish people over the past millennium. Study with world-renowned scholars at the Graduate School of Jewish Studies, including Dean Michael Schmidman and Professor Schneer Lyman, Judith Bleich, Jeffrey Wolf, Susan Weissman, and Dana Fishkin, among other respected experts. For more information on admission to the Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies, including scholarship opportunities, please please visit gsjs.turo.edu or call 212-463-0400, extension 55580. Of course, I will post both the link and the phone number in the show notes of the episode, as well as on Jewish History, history Soundbite social media platforms, you'll be able to access it. It sounds like a wonderful program. And um, if more people are studying Jewish history, then that's just wonderful. So, in our three-part series on the history of anti-Semitism, so in part one, 
was a general, we did a general overview of, of the history of anti-Semitism and how it has manifested itself differently over the millennia, how it seems to progress chronologically from pagan anti-Judaism of antiquity to religious anti-Judaism of Christianity and the church during the Middle Ages, and then it moves over to modern anti-Semitism, nationalism, and it evolves into racial anti-Semitism, which culminates in the Holocaust. There's, of course, um, Islamic anti, anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism, um, however you want to prefer terminology through the ages, and then radical Islam in more recent times. And then we have in recent years, I mentioned also new anti-Semitism, which is a combination of the extreme right, the extreme left, and radical Islam, Palestinian nationalism, and this revolves around the question also of whether anti-Israel constitutes anti-Semitism or not, which is a very hotly debated issue in the media and in politics, and it's very contemporary, and unsurprisingly, since it's a hotly contested contemporary issue, I will not be getting into it in the context of this series. We also discussed in part one, just doing a quick summary so that we can segue nicely a transition into part two, but we also discussed in part one how this chronological progression is somewhat misleading because many of these different forms of uh, anti-Semitism and the substance is very much similar but its form, its expression changes over time. Um, but many of them overlapped and even appeared at junctures in history where we would not have expected it. And I cited two examples, one of which I will discuss further today in further detail, which is the czarist anti-Semitism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's supposed to be modern anti-Semitism. And yet we still see religious elements to their anti-Semitism when ostensibly religious anti-Semitism was no longer supposed to exist. And conversely, I noted that an even more surprising anti-Semitic expression in the 14th and 15th century Spain on the Iberian Peninsula and the Catholic kingdoms there, when there was already, we saw there, a manifestation of racial anti-Semitism, when racial anti-Semitism is only supposed to appear on the world scene in the late 19th century and early 20th. So we see that these... You know, we we tend to think of them as a chronological progression of different types of anti-Semitism, yet uh, being that um, anti-Judaism and anti-Jewish people and anti-Jewish hatred, however you want to term it, throughout history, there are some underlying themes that remain salient features throughout um, its, 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 throughout its long history, unfortunately. And therefore... The particular expression isn't so important, and therefore many of these different expressions overlap. That was what we did in part one. What I'd like to do on this episode today is to do a more of a deeper dive into the 19th century. Basically, it's kind of like from the late 18th century, because it's from the technically from the French Revolution through the Napoleonic Wars, and then the 19th century in Europe, where the focus of today's episode is, There's the 1848 revolutions which rock Europe and the questions of nationalism and empire and and emancipation and equal rights and these political changes that are sweeping the European landscape in mid-century. There's the rise of nationalism. There's the lessening of the church's influence and even of 
uh, not just the church as a institution, but religion as a form of the basis of, of European identity, um, along with nationalism, or really after the rise of nationalism comes romanticism, which is um, you know more more racial than nationalistic. It's about the the culture, the uniqueness of the culture of the nation state. Um, and um, that also rises in Europe in the mid to late 19th century. Think of the uh, the folk tales of the Grimm brothers in Germany. Grimm brothers, by the way, were anti-Semitic, and some of their stories were anti-Semitic. So that's a, an expression of romanticism, of uh, of the the inherent culture of the race, which um, which has an impact on anti-Semitism as well, um, and. As far as the story of the Jewish people during this time, the emancipation that they get in Western Europe, and then the story of the Jews in the Tsarist Russian Empire in Eastern Europe, where the majority of the world's Jews are, especially European Jews, who do not receive emancipation, they do not receive equal rights under the Tsars, yet they are hoping to throughout the 19th century, uh, because they see their brethren in Western Europe have already received emancipation. So we're going to examine that all the above today through the prism of modern anti-Semitism. And I'm going to focus more on Europe and less on the Ottoman Empire or the Jews of the Muslim lands, even though there are significant developments in anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, anti-Jews in those areas as well. Actually, once did a, an episode on the Damascus blood libel of 1840 that's related to that context of, uh, of the 19th century in the Ottoman Empire. Um, we also mentioned in, in part one how there was this omnipresent economic element of anti-Semitism through the ages. In the Middle, of age, in the middle Ages excuse me, of Christian Europe, it was the Jew as the moneylender. In the 19th century, what we're going to develop today is we're witness to a more sophisticated version of that economic element to anti-Semitism, and that becomes this economic anti-Semitic trope, which is still with us today, unfortunately, that Jews control the banks, that Jews control finance, um, and there's this, this uh, the Rothschild family, which is the greatest banking family in Europe, um, becomes a very, very dominant in anti-Semitic caricatures and propaganda um, and in conspiracy theories, many others as well, not just the Rothschilds, and therefore that will be part of today's story as well. Um, I hope to, if we have time, to also get to some Jewish reactions to modern anti-Semitism as well, because um, if we focus all the time on what the anti-Semites are doing, then it's not so much a story of Jewish history. It's We want to talk about how Jews reacted and what the what they did, what do they do about it? They're not passive players in the story; they're active players, and it's a very important part of the story. Very often, when we study things like anti-Semitism, uh, we say, "What did they do? What did the goyim? What did the anti-Semites do?" Um, and that make that's kind of like buying into um, the narrative of the anti-Semites themselves, because it makes the Jewish people as objects and as passive um, actors in this. Uh, scene when it's not the case at all. Um, so let's so let's go go through this step by step. In the 19th century, we especially you know if we take a step back from the French Revolution. So 
that brings a new world order to Europe. It's, a, it's not a sudden thing. It's obviously a long process, and it's over the course of the entire century where religion, uh, there's this less, you know, it, it becomes a very um, minor factor in forming the basis of European identity, in, in European society, whereas through the Middle Ages, the dominant factor of identity was but first the Catholic Church and following the Reformation, the you know, whatever church one belonged to. And the modern era, especially from the 19th century and on, it's, it's uh, less and less religion-based. So what does form identity in the 19th century? A new thing, a new idea called nationalism, which is a product of the 19th century. And this is the struggle between empire and and nationalist identity, right? And and this this is this is the story of the modern era. It's with us still today. It hasn't gone away at all whatsoever. Um, hasn't lessened its grip on world society. Um, so that's very relevant. It's very much with us. This idea of nationalism, how um, a nation. In other words, you'd ask the average Frenchman in the 14, 15, 16, 17th, even 18th century, who are you? And they'll say, I'm Catholic. Whereas in the 19th century, who are you? I'm a Frenchman. That that becomes a, a very strong component or element of one's personal identity. Nationalism also creates the idea of the individual. It also creates a break in the class system, even though the class system doesn't completely fall apart until World War I. But it's the beginnings of those cracks because everyone becomes part of the nation and everyone has what to contribute to the nation. And everyone is seen as an individual citizen um, with their obligations, responsibilities, and rights, um, the beginnings of equal rights. Um, emancipation is not uniquely a Jewish story, right? Because under the class system, there are many, many of the lower classes who also want equal rights, who also want to be considered part of the nation. But what makes the Jewish story unique is that the question is, are Jew, can Jews become Frenchmen? Can Jews integrate into society? Are they really to be viewed as members of the society who happen to be from a different religion? But religion doesn't matter anymore in the modern era. That's that's the big question regarding the Jews, and it becomes part of the Jewish question and the idea that there's a Jewish question or Jewish problem. Both of those words, question and problem, are in quotes, because if we accept the idea that there's a Jewish question or problem, that means, again, we're buying into the narrative, um, then then that, that, that becomes, again, a, a major force in European politics, in European thought, in, in the media, in philosophy, in, 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 and it's played out in governments, in universities, in, in jobs, in commerce. It, what, what is the answer to the Jewish question? How do we solve the Jewish question or problem? depending on which anti-Semite is talking. And um, eventually Jews attempt to answer, answer the question as well, later on in the century. Um, they're going to solve it by their own means. And, and eventually, if we jump ahead of our story to part three, where I'm going to talk a little bit about racial anti-Semitism, what eventually culminates into in the mid-20th century is the Holocaust, or specifically the Final Solution. The final solution, what, what does that mean? What are the words final solution that the Nazi use as their terminology? Is that 
European society has been burning with this question, what to do in, with the Jew in the modern era. Once emancipation hits, once the question arises, should the Jews be considered part of a society? Should they be given equal rights? Should they be viewed as equals, as Germans, as Frenchmen, as Dutch, as Italians, as British, as 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 whatever? And how do we view them? And what type of rights should they have? Europe has been struggling with this question. Well, we have the final solution to this question, and that is the Jews cannot be seen as members of society, and they should be removed entirely. And that's why it's called the final solution. So the question starts well over 100 years earlier, 100 from the French Revolution. And one can even draw somewhat of a line, obviously not a linear line, because it's a lot of factors and it's a lot of complications, a lot of ups and downs on the way. And I'm not trying to paint a black and white picture, but there is somewhat of a line from the French Revolution when the Jewish question arises because of emancipation and the rise of nationalism. And what does nationalism mean with emancipation for the Jews? Are Jews part of the nation? And then it develops from nationalism into racial anti-Semitism, leading all the way to the final solution. Um, in an indirect way, very indirect. I don't want to uh, um, oh, you know, make it that it's just simply a linear, linear path. Um, so emancipation and nationalism have a decisive impact on the development of modern anti-Semitism. And again, if we compare it to religious Jew hatred in the Middle Ages, it was because Jews allegedly committed deicide. They, 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 they are not Christian. They have obstinately refused to recognize the truth of Christianity. That was the Christian Catholic Jew hatred. The Jews are accused of ritual Murder, they kill a child for the blood in their matzahs. These are all the false accusations being hurled against Jews in the Middle Ages. And they're isolated and rejected from society as a result, very often physically, not just metaphorically, by having ghettos in the pre-Nazi, the old pre-Nazi meeting of a ghetto. And that old ghetto was both literal and figurative. Oh, that brings me to another idea. During the Middle Ages, we're very often taught, despite we were taught that the that the uh, the the Jewish people survived their long exile in the diaspora because excuse me because um, the uh, despite despite the attitude of the non-Jewish general population and and ruling government. Um, the reality is just the opposite. Jews didn't survive despite the attitude of the general population. They survived because of the non-Jewish population. The, Jewish, the non-Jewish population and the non-Jewish government and the non-Jewish church authorities, they decided to, on one hand, like we saw last episode, keep them alive to a certain extent and, uh, and also to isolate them. Um, emancipation in the 19th century creates a new reality that now Jews are part of society. And they're counted, they're seen as individuals, citizens of the state who have what to contribute to the state, who are going to be drafted into the military, who have to who have to be part of the state and contribute to its success and have responsibilities and privileges and rights. And now they're integrating, they're starting to use the language of the state, they're less isolated. The schools, they're allowed to attend the schools of the state. 
They're allowed to live in different neighborhoods. They're allowed to participate in finance and economics and different branches of commerce that they were used to be excluded from. They're allowed to participate and contribute to the culture of the state. They're now drafted into the military. And they now, in many countries, receive equal rights. Over the 19th century, more and more countries give that to the Jews. And just when that happens, and collective identity in Europe begins to form around nationalism in place of religion at this time, Jews are now said to not be part of the nation. In an almost metaphysical sense, Jews cannot be French, they cannot be German, etc., because they're Jews, they're different. They're not true Frenchmen. Um, they've lived in France for a thousand years, on and off. They were kicked out of, expelled from France in the Middle Ages a couple of times. But they're not really French because they're Jews. And it's hard to explain at this point because religion is not supposed to form the basis of identity. So it's, it's almost like a blunter, more harsh form of anti-Semitism. In other words, we want to reject you from society. And... Because you're Jews, because you're different, because we don't want you and we don't see you as part of society. In in fact, if you, again, if you, and I'm going to constantly make this comparison, compare it to religious anti-Semitism, religious anti-Semitism kind of like made sense in a religious context. You're not our religion, you're different. And in our religious belief, we believe false beliefs about you, as it turns out, about ritual murder and about deicide and about how, you know, you... You're, you refuse to recognize the truth, and 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 it's my religion or 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 none because you know the Middle Ages can't recognize the truth of more than one religion, and there's no acceptance and equality in the Middle Ages. But there's certain there's a certain logic to it. Modern anti-Semitism is in a certain way illogical, irrational, because it's not about religion; it's about nationalism. Voltaire, for instance the great French philosopher, he bases his anti-Semitism around nationalism. Jews aren't true Frenchmen. They can't be French because they're Jews. Um, And if they're going to integrate into the French society because we gave them emancipation, they're going to take over. They're going to take over our banks. They're going to take over our commerce. They're going to pollute our culture, our pure, true French culture. And this becomes the dominant features of modern anti-Semitism. And then this begins the quest for the solution to the Jewish question, and the words solution to the Jewish question are in quotation marks, and as well as solving the question of what is Jewish identity in the modern world. Are Jews a religion? Are they an ethnic group? Are they a nation? Are they a race? Or they were only considered something else because of the misguided religious identity of of uh, of the of the Middle Ages, and now that we're all equals, we're all a fraternal brotherhood, humanity, everyone's equal, then Jews can simply integrate and eventually assimilate into marriage, and and we can negate Jewish identity entirely. This whole question essentially creates the space for modern anti-Semitism, and here I want to branch off, because I spoke a little bit abstract just now, I want to branch off into three distinct illustrations of 19th century modern anti-Semitism. And we'll go by country. France, Germany, it's not really Germany at the beginning of the century, it's the Germanic states still, it's Prussia is one of the dominant ones, but there's many, many others. And eventually towards the latter half of the, the second half of the century, more to the 1860, 70, 1870, there's the unified Germany, 
Otto von Bismarck, so then we can speak of actually a place called Germany, um, is the second place. And the third one is Tsarist Russia. Now, obviously, I can give many, many more examples in many, many other countries across the world, not only in Europe. But I want to speak about these three as uh, to, to understand how modern anti-Semitism develops in the 19th century. France is where emancipation begins. It's the home of the French Revolution, the liberal values. And emancipation fails to stamp out anti-Semitism. It even starts uh, there, the modern anti-Semitism, like I said, from Voltaire. And then later on in the century, you have many, many other prominent French anti-Semites. Edward Drummond during the Dreyfus trial, which I'll get to. It actually leads to the Dreyfus trial. Uh, forget about it, I'll get to it right now. Uh, the the culmination of French anti-Semitism, the Jews can't be part of French society, and Jews are blamed for economic woes and 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 and... And you look at the caricatures of, of in prominent French newspapers in the 19th century, you start to see the very distinctive features that will come to note um, in, the, in the 20th century, which, is, which eventually becomes part of racial anti-Semitism in the Nazi era. Um, it starts in France, uh, of all places, and it becomes very strong there. And, 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 and then... We come to the Dreyfus trial, which I'm going to get back to, hopefully, if I have time. Um, so the, the, the emancipation doesn't solve the problem. Equal rights don't solve the problem. Citizenry for the Jews don't solve the problem. The Jews completely integrating into French society, which French Jewry does, does not solve the problem. And actually, anti-Semitism is quite strong because, and we'll phrase it in a very, you know, almost like a paradox, now that you're part of society, we're gonna wa- we want to reject you from society. For a thousand years, you weren't part of society. Now you are part of society. You've been legislated into society. And now the popular opinion is that we want to reject you from society. You can't be French. You're Jews. You're different. Um, in Germany, the very term anti-Semitism is formulated in Germany. Um, so... Maybe it's actually born in Germany, not in France, and I'm sure that's a debatable topic. In about mid-century, the idea of anti-Semitism is born in France. You have um, first, you have Heinrich von Treitschke. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but if not, then who needs to pronounce anti-Semites' names correctly? And he comes. He's a, a, a virulent anti-Semitic personality whose writings have a big decisive impact on anti-Semitic thought throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. And he also coins the term, the Jews are our misfortune. Um, the Juden, the, the Juden, the unser Unglück, I'm probably completely mispronouncing that in German, but that becomes a slogan. Later of the Nazi party, it appears in every single edition of Der Stürmer, of Julius Streicher, in, in uh, Nazi Germany, and it comes from the 1860s and 70s, from this Heinrich von Treitschke. Wilhelm Marr becomes the father of modern anti-Semitism when he forms the first anti-Semitic league, which is almost like a, a fraternity, a political party, and others, many, many others. By the way, there's anti-Semitic leagues in other countries, in France and others. There's an influence on modern anti-Semitism, especially in Germany, from the eugenics movement, and social Darwinism, that we apply Darwinism to humanity, to 
sociology, to, 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 to the struggle between the races. And this is the bridge, social Darwinism is the bridge from modern anti-Semitism to racial anti-Semitism. And that, that becomes quite intense in Germany over the latter half of the 19th century. The worst place of all of anti-Semitism in the 19th century was in Tsarist Imperial Russia, where the government itself was virulently anti-Semitic. There's no emancipation for the massive Jewish population of Russia. Increasing anti-Semitic policies legislated by the government over the century. And it gets steadily worse in the decades leading up to World War I, which is the opposite of what we would think, because the 19th century is supposed to bring progress. And even if there is anti-Semitism, we would think it's from bottom up, not from top down. And in Tsarist Russia, it's legislation from the government. As the century goes on, it gets steadily worse for Russian Jewry. I always hypothesize... What would have happened to Russian Jewry, which is the largest Jewish community in the world, I remind you, um, and if I'm not mistaken, for a while in the 19th century, it had the absolute majority of the Jewish people, not just the largest population. What would have happened had there not been a World War I or Russian Revolution? The trajectory of the Tsarist government was more restrictions, less less fluidity, less um, less um, ability for Jews to move outside of the Pale of Settlement, um, more limitations on commerce, more limitations on education, more taxation. It, it was getting steadily worse, worse and worse and worse uh, over from the 1880s and on. So we talk about how horrible it was under Tsar Nikolai uh, I with the Cantonist decrees, and then there's this period of liberalization under Tsar Alexander the 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 second um, until his assassination, but then under Tsar Alexander the third, and then especially under Tsar Nikolai the second, things get terrible. I mean, it was terrible before that. It's hard to imagine how it could have been worse, and it was steadily getting worse. And therefore, the the this plight of Russian Jewry because it's the official policy of the Tsarist government. The goal of the Tsarist government is to make it worse for the Jews under, under in, in, in Russia. And, and, that, and that comes to form in all types of legislation. And here, like I spoke about in part one, it's a combination of both modern anti-Semitism, as, as it, very similar to German, French, and other places. Jews are not part of Russia. They have to be limited to the Pale of Settlement. They cannot integrate, especially after the government... Uh, pulls back from what's referred to in Jewish history as the Haskala Mitam during the period of liberalization under Tsar Alexander II when the government tries to integrate Russian Jewry in the 1840s and 50s, 60s. Sorry, 18, yeah, 40s. It starts under Tsar Nikolai and it continues under Tsar Alexander II. Um, and and, uh, and um, when they go back from that and they just try to place more restrictions onto Jews, and nationalism does rise in imperial Russia, ironically. There is a strong Russian nationalism by the end of the century, um, especially at the grassroots level. And then there's also this religious element, because the Tsar is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, and he sees himself as responsible for the Russian Orthodox Church. And there's this 
almost Middle Ages type of anti-Semitism, and that leads to the Mendel Bayless trial. So if we take a look at two major trials, which are great expressions of anti-Semitism, at the turn of the century, the Dreyfus trial at the end of the 19th century, and the Bayless trial, when the Dreyfus trial is, of course, Alfred Dreyfus is the captain of the French army, so it's in France, and Menachem Mendel Bayless is this manager of a Kiev factory, so he's, of course, in the Pale of Settlement in Russia. Both those trials are the culmination of anti-Semitism in those respective countries. Before I go to compare the two, that's what I'm going to do in the last couple of minutes of this episode, I just want to make one last mention of Germany in between France and Russia. Um, you have another Germanic or German-speaking country, um, Austria, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So in Vienna, the capital of the empire, there's obviously a mayor of the city. And at the turn of the century, the mayor of that city is a fellow by the name of Karl Luger. And again, I probably am pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, and he uses anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic tropes, anti-Semitic fear tactics. The Jews are taking over. You need to vote for my party to because because uh, because I'm going to prevent the Jews uh, from taking over finance and taking over Vienna and taking over our culture and the the Jewish threat and the Jewish scare. And he uses that in every single election campaign of his to become mayor. And I think it was several times. I don't remember exactly how many. In order to garner votes and win elections, we have all those election posters. We know it. We can see it. We see the caricatures. We see what he's saying, what he says in his speeches, what's in the media that he says in his party. That's their party platform. So there's two points to make about that. Number one, First of all, there was a young Adolf Hitler growing up in Vienna during this time, and he looked up to Karl Luger as inspiration. And he has an impact on his thinking and on his anti-Semitic development. That's one important point. But I think that's a minor point, because I want to look at it as a more broader, as far as European modern anti-Semitism is, is that Karl Luger never did anything, never passed any anti-Semitic legislation, meaning he never kept any of his campaign promises. There was nothing anti-Semitic he ever did during his actual tenures as mayor in Vienna. And there was loads of Jews living in Vienna at the time. He never did anything. So one thing you could say, okay, he's a dishonest politician. Well, most politicians are, so that shouldn't be any surprise. But the other point is, is that he, it seems that he was just using it to get votes. He knew that this is an easy way to win elections. In other words, whether or not he personally was an anti-Semite, it's debatable, who knows? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, probably was. But it made no difference. He was playing off a grassroots movement. He sensed that the average voter, the average citizen in Vienna, this would be a platform that would talk to them. And therefore he used it. So it doesn't say so much about the leadership as much as it says about general European society. And that, I think, is one of the most important points to make. And that also is related to these trials, Dreyfus and Bayless. And I want to elaborate on both trials and what lies in between. The last couple of minutes we have here um, is that the Dreyfus trial, you know, he's framed, he's falsely accused of passing on secrets to, to the Prussian military. It's not him. It's a total frame-up. The army knows, the, military, the French military, the high command General staff knows that it's a frame-up. They deliberately do it just because he's the only officer on the French general staff. 
And then when it, Emil Zola and other people try to expose it, George Picard, um, um, they are they are fought in courts and in public opinion, and it's this rise of anti-Semitism, violent and really evil, disgusting anti-Semitism that plays out in general society. Um, in the Dreyfus trial, the Bayless trial, which is 1912-1913, several years later, the Dreyfus trials in the 1890s, the Bayless trials is ritual murder. So the czarist Russia, instead of progressing, is going back a few hundred years in history, back to ritual murder charges. This, this Bayless is falsely accused of murdering a Russian child for ritual purposes. They're matzahs on Pesach. Of course, it was a total frame-up. And the liberals in Russian society, the radicals, the revolutionaries, the liberals, the intellectuals, the intelligentsia, are all on, you know, defending against this. It's embarrassing for Russia that we're using this medieval charge, whereas the general society and the Russian Orthodox Church and the rightists and the elite and the nationalists and the czarist government themselves are all pushing for for this ritual murder charge. And that brings me to the next point. We're looking at general society. The, on one hand, there's the liberals in the general society, both in France and in Russia, who stood up for the persecuted minority, the Jews, the Milzolas of, of France, and the, and the, the Russian uh, intellectuals and the Russian lawyers who defended Bayless successfully, by the way, unlike in France. So interestingly enough, in the courts, in the justice system, liberal, modern, Western France uh, convicted Dreyfus, and in backward Russia, the liberal um, uh, uh, lawyers who were defending Bayless were successful in getting him acquitted. Um, so it's interesting. That's also interesting. But it was both the liberal values and the people who believed in them in them on the left who were the ones who fought anti-Semitism and defended the persecuted minority uh, the Jews who were the victims of anti-Semitism, which came from nationalism and the right. Um, the next group to examine in both of these trials is the protagonists themselves, which also says a lot. Alfred Dreyfus didn't see himself so much as Jewish. He saw himself more as French, whereas Bayless was a proud Jew and really carried the Jewish people and his identity and really came out as a hero from the trial. Um, the third part to examine in both those trials is the reactions of the local community in each instance and what that reflects the specific context of French and Russian Jewry in regards to reacting towards anti-Semitism at the turn of the century because the French Jewish community says, no, Dreyfus is a traitor, we don't want to have anything to do with him, that's not what true Jews are, true Jews are French patriots, not like Dreyfus, in other words, they reject Dreyfus, whereas the Jewish community of Russia fully backs him, they're the ones who come to him, they, they come to testify at his trial, they come to defend him in all the Jewish newspapers in Russia, they're the ones backing him up, and the Jewish community is really unified behind Bayless in that trial, so that it says a lot about the differences between what emancipation did for French Jewry as far as non-emancipation did in Russian Jewry. Um, and that's an interesting um, thing to develop as well. Um, I did not get to speak about either the Protocols of Elders of Zion, which was an early 1900s um, fiction made up uh, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory composed in Tsarist Russia and then exported to France. Um, which is another topic to speak about. Maybe I'll speak about that next time. Um, I also didn't get to, s to talk about how Jews responded to anti-Semitism. 
Um, and I want to speak about that next time as well. So in part three, besides for going into what I meant to talk about, racial anti-Semitism, I'm going to try to wrap up what I didn't get to in this episode. So this was um, Yehuda Gabor with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudagabor.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships and, le- sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.